Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome or welcome back to Season 3 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. The Logical Christian Podcast is not here to tell you what to think. It's an exercise in how to think. Rather than just accept what we're being told with regard to current events, politics, science, religion, and everything else, we're going to stop the spin, ask questions, dive deep, and look at the world logically. And since logic is a gift from God, most importantly, we're going to look at it all as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Humanity is volving. You heard me right, volving. The question is, in which direction? Are we going up or are we going down? Evolving or devolving? If old Chucky Darwin, Bill Nye the fake science guy, and Rick Dawkins are correct, we are evolving and always have been. Of course, humanity has gone too far at this point and must be culled, but that doesn't change the fact that we're going up. But I, well, I believe that they may be wrong. I think our volution might have peaked and we are now headed on down, devolving. Not back to apes or monkeys or goo in some prehistoric waters just waiting on that one special spark. No, I think our current form will continue. It's our brains I'm worried about. On today's episode, first we're going to advance technology all the way backwards to a hot, moist, tropical stone age. Then we'll logically rationalize and argue how nothing is quite obviously the key to everything. And finally, we'll check in with God's word for a bit, just to see if we still have the ability to comprehend what he's trying to tell us. So, grab a big branch and, uh, go learn make fire. You're going to need it. Then grab your popcorn, take your seat, and prepare to be amazed at the magical stylings of some genetics, guys. And finally, if you be reading and be reasoning like a Berean, then you won't be needing to be believing what the world be feeding. And now, here we go? Or should it be, here we go? Once upon a time, there was a young Caucasian, Puerto Rican, Persian, Greek, black boy who was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He spent the second half of his childhood in Delaware. He had your typical traditional faith-based upbringing as a black Protestant Catholic Jew, just like most of us. He didn't attend his first choice colleges, despite their almost embarrassing attempts to woo him, because individuals who would eventually become famous national football league players that had nothing to do with the position he played may or may not have played at the same time he did, making it so he couldn't play his totally unrelated position at such and such college, forcing him to look elsewhere to showcase his athletic prowess. Eventually, he settled on a college, graduating with a law degree in the top half of his class, with three undergraduate degrees, all on a full academic scholarship, which would be commendable were it true. Early in life, he vowed to live the thankless life of a public servant, never turned his back on that vow even today, 51 years later. Despite bravely battling a lifelong stutter that he was able to completely and totally hide for decades, it eventually reappeared, manifesting itself, as all stutters do, as severe dementia. During his time in the public sector, he had the honor to serve as a full-tenured teaching professor at multiple colleges that he absolutely didn't serve as a teaching professor at, but he vowed to cure cancer. Didn't do it, but he vowed to, and that counts for something, doesn't it? He also successfully fought to remove weapons of war from the shaky trigger fingers of the public, regardless of the Second Amendment trying to stand in his way, which did absolutely nothing for gun-related crimes. 
He co-sponsored the, quote, violence against women bill, which you'd think he'd want to stop the violence against women, but whatever. He did a few other things as well in the 40-plus years he spent in the Senate, which proves how difficult it is to do anything in the public sector. Apparently, one can only propose, co-sponsor, or suggest something once every five years or so. A lion-hearted champion of the people fighting hard a few times every decade for you and me. Eventually, as a reward for a life of service, essentially no accomplishments to speak of, countless racist comments, gaff after gaff, well, he was honored with the vice presidency for some reason. And then later, maybe because of the 17,000 miles he traveled with President Xi of China, who wasn't president at that time and, and didn't travel that distance at all, or maybe it was the billions of miles he rode on Amtrak, even though he didn't, that Conductor Ange spoke to him about, who was actually dead at the time that this story was claimed to have occurred, and despite the fact that he was clearly unable to string a single coherent thought together, he was elected to lead this great nation as the people living and dead, many of them multiple times over, a large number of them not even existing in the first place, all felt that he was the best person to courageously lead this country to the second world status of lower mediocrity we always knew we could aspire to. And then, as one of the first things his puppet master overlords, Barack Obama and others, commanded him to do, Newly inaugurated President Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. vowed to save the planet from certain doom. He rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement, an agreement that everyone who's ever studied it agrees would literally do nothing for the planet, even if all the signatory nations fulfilled their obligations, which they absolutely are not doing. He also pledged to use the newly formed National Climate Task Force to move our once great nation to a zero emissions economy by 2050 with an initial 2030 target of reducing greenhouse gas pollution 50% as compared to 2005 to help contribute to the global goal set forth by the UNFCCC. <laughs> oh, don't act like you don't know who the UNFCCC is. The United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change? And now, just the other day, finally, the Bureau of Land Management and the Department of Energy's Renewable Energy Laboratory is taking action. Found on electrek.co headline, The U.S. Government Opens 22 Million Acres of Federal Lands to Solar. Now, 22 million acres sounds like a lot, but really, when you look at it, it's really only about 34,500 square miles, which is just a little bit bigger than the state of South Carolina, but it's not even as big as Indiana. So, I mean, that's just, just one state's worth of land, you know, to power, I guess, I don't know, the nation or something. I'm not really sure. We'll see if we can figure this out. So these two government agencies calculated, and as we all know, Government calculations are never wrong that it would take a mere 700,000 acres of solar farms on federal lands over the next 20 years to power the nation and reduce us to a net zero carbon emitter. So just to be safe and give some flexibility, they decided to just kind of nudge that number up 3,150% to 22 million acres 
you know, for maximum flexibility. So they need less than the state of Rhode Island to help the U.S. reach its net zero target by 2035, but they take Rhode Island plus an extra South Carolina in order to do it. And understand that when they say help the U.S., they mean, you know, do the bidding of the U.N. and the W.E.F. and just leftists everywhere. Now, this plan was updated from a 2012 plan, which was going to place solar farms in Arizona, California, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, and Utah. And it adds in Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington, and Wyoming. They're also being careful to stay away from land with sensitive resources. In comparison, right now, there are 80 million acres of federal lands open to oil and gas development. So see, that's not fair. And clearly, per the totally correct calculated numbers, if it takes 700,000 acres, or even 22 million acres for net zero, but 80 million acres for gas and oil, well, obviously, solar is totally way better because we're definitely not comparing apples and, say, wolverines. On a related note, just the other day in the western Mojave Desert, the world's largest, highest-capacity solar farm, partially located on land belonging to Edwards Air Force Base, went online. This solar farm spans 4,600 acres and can generate 875 megawatts of solar power at full capacity. Now, as a comparison, the Davis Bess Nuclear Power Station is a single-reactor nuclear power plant with a nameplate power rating of 894 megawatts, so pretty close to the same as a solar farm. It sits on 954 acres of land as compared to the 4,600 acres for the solar farm and battery storage. Oh, and it only actually uses 221 acres for the power plant. Yeah, this, this nuclear plant has dedicated 733 acres to the Ottawa National Wildlife Refuge. So if you did the math, you could fit about 20 times the amount of nuclear power in the area that's being taken up by this, uh, by this solar farm. But they want carbon-free power, which nuclear absolutely... I mean, it absolutely is. So obviously we want to just scatter solar panels across the country. That, that's kind of what it boils down to. Oh, also, keep in mind that solar panels degrade. Yeah, their calculated rate is 0.5% per year. So after 20 years, you're at about 90% efficiency. The lifespan of a commercial solar panel is generally stated at 25 to 30 years, not because it won't work anymore, but because you've lost about 10 to 15% of your capacity, which is a very large amount, it turns out. The Davis Best plant was built in the 1970s and commissioned in 1978, so it's, it's nearly 46 years old now, and it has renewed its license to run until 2037, and they could always renew it again if they really wanted. But in 2037, it'll be approaching 60 years old and just, you know, cranking out power. Now, unlike a nuclear or other conventional power plant that can generate power, you know, just all the time, 24-7, solar farms can only generate electricity during the day. So if you want power at night, you need to pull power from large storage batteries, of which this large solar farm has 33,287 megawatt hours of total energy storage. Now, this means a couple things. Not only will the panels degrade over time, so, you know, so do batteries, which will also eventually need to be replaced, but it also means that 33,287 megawatt hours is, uh, is really only storing about 38 hours of full generation capacity of the solar farm. 
But more importantly, at night or during days when it's not as sunny for whatever reason, well, less generation happens from the solar panels and the batteries will be used, meaning the batteries need to be recharged because they don't last forever. So you'd have to actually limit the normal usage that's hooked into this farm to maybe, I don't know, 75% of the generation capacity? And no, it's a lot less than that. We'll, we'll get to that. You need to recharge those batteries, right? While powering whatever you're powering so you, you don't max out the solar farm. Uh, you know, and if you max it out on what you're trying to power, then you can never charge your batteries and then the batteries die and, and they weren't a lot of trouble, you know, when it gets dark. Now, we all know that at night the usage goes down. Let's say it drops by 75%. Only 25% is used. Well, for every hour at night, you need an hour during the day of that extra solar capacity to charge the batteries back to full, in theory, because every day you don't fill it up, you lose that much more ground in the batteries, and again, you've eventually drained the batteries. That's a problem that you don't have with nuclear, oil, coal, gas, or even hydropower. But I guess it makes perfect sense to build something that takes up 20 times the space to generate much less power and have half the usable life, at best, with long periods of no generation capability that's just as pollution-free, that requires more materials to build, all to save the planet, right? Well, FieldandStream.com says that conservationists aren't too sure about this solar farm plan. They're looking at the fact that these massive sprawling solar fields are generally fenced off, eliminating the potential for wildlife, for fishing or hunting, and typically make the land, you know, useless for everything else. Although there is a company working in Wyoming, I believe, that claims that they can graze sheep under their panels. Because despite the vegetation growth being nearly 40% less, they claim the nutrition is higher due to the shade, so the sheep, you know, grow the same. Uh, this is based off of one small-scale test, but even if this does work, as they say, how many sheep could we possibly have in the U.S., you know, to graze under solar panels? Speaking of wildlife, back in 2016, a report came out regarding the Ivanpah, even Pa solar plant in the Mojave Desert that was literally incinerating 6,000 birds mid-flight per year because of superheated focused sun rays reflecting off of mirrors intended to direct sunlight to the panels. Now granted, this is a unique type of installation, but the effort was undertaken to get the solar farm to produce as much power as possible because that's really the key Seeing as though the power per acre, shall we say, is much worse than oh, just about anything except for wind, which is about twice as bad as solar, well, they need these things to work at peak efficiency. But the PETA-type people aren't happy about the birds being cooked in midair, uh, just like they're not happy about birds being smashed to pieces by windmill blades. But while we're talking about peak efficiency, another study by the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory found that relying on rainfall to keep solar panels clean may not actually do what they hoped. See, the problem is that solar panels are designed to produce electricity based on how much sunlight they can process. If the panel has a buildup of dust, dirt, particles, or pollen, the production capacity is reduced. Their recent studies showed that the capacity could actually be reduced by as much as 10 to 15 percent, depending on the environment the solar farm is installed in. But excuse me if I'm incorrect here, but wasn't the reduction in capacity of 10 to 15 percent what they said constituted scrapping the old panels and replacing with new? Hmm. 
So the theory has been to let the rain just wash them off, keep them clean. But they're finding that that just isn't as reliable or as effective as they'd hoped. So the solution is to power wash these panels with some sort of mechanical brush. So this is clearly a nuisance, especially for large installations. But what they didn't state in their article is that this will require more manpower. Of course, manpower equals cost passed on to the consumer. It means water must be pumped from something or somewhere, mechanically pumped, probably using electricity, and we're talking about a lot of water and a lot of time. And how environmentally friendly is that? But as some residents in Plainville, Massachusetts recently found out, the stripping of the land of trees in order to place a solar farm necessitated a, a catch basin for water runoff of the now scraped landscape. But if that basin isn't sized properly, well, houses that never used to be in a floodplain, well, they sure are now. And because they don't live in a floodplain, they didn't have flood insurance, which means they're out tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to repair the damage to their homes. I mean, that is until they just flipping sue everyone for damages, which they should, and which they probably will, and which they'll definitely win. But it's not just rain. A few years ago, Sandia National Laboratories did a little old research project and collected data from 800 solar farms across 24 states to see what impact severe weather had on solar power generation. The result was um, pretty big, pretty big impact. Now, I know you're shocked. It turns out that, quote, hurricanes, blizzards, hailstorms, and wildfires all pose risks to solar farms, both directly in the form of costly damage and indirectly in the form of blocked sunlight and reduced electricity output. Now, additionally, regular everyday storms and wind and lightning and flooding, and you may want to sit down for this one, clouds, those tend to be some of the bigger problems cited. And the entire Logical Christian Podcast Army says as if speaking is one, what? See, they found that the older solar farms were the most susceptible to issues because of the, the wear and tear of the elements for all of those five years they've been in operation. Yeah, they literally called the five-year-old solar farms older. Can you imagine if you had a car for five years, brand new car, now it's five years old, dealing with all those weather elements, the wear and tear, and you're like, yeah, it's an older car. I expect it to be less reliable and break down a whole lot more. I mean, that's crazy. Quite literally, the power generation systems that are going to save the world, solar and wind, are the systems that are getting a little long in the renewable tooth at five years old. Now, ignoring the fact that most of these severe weather events resulting in damage are turned in as insurance claims, which has seen premiums increase a mere 400% over 18 months, which definitely won't be passed along to the consumer. This also reduces the output of the solar farm, although they didn't say by how much, at least in the free summary of the study I read, and I'm not paying for the full thing. I did find another source that stated, quote, We know that solar power is affected by weather conditions and output varies through the days and seasons. Clouds, rain, Snow and fog can all block sunlight from reaching solar panels. On a cloudy day, output can drop by 75%. Yeah, that's what I thought too. 75%. So what we need is a nice, dry, non-dusty, non-stormy, non-polleny, hot and sunny area for these farms. Uh, not too hot though. As reported... 
uh, in the World Economic Forum website of all places. Too much heat is actually a bad thing for solar panels. The CO solar equipment supplier in the United States said that hot temperatures can reduce the capacity by 10 to 25 percent. They said that solar panels are tested at 77 degrees Fahrenheit and have a temperature range of 60 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit for optimum performance. But solar panels can get as hot as 150 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, because they're um, they're in the direct sunlight. I guess I'm starting to understand why our government wants 31 times the amount of land for solar than what they calculated the actual need to be. You take 10% here, you take 15% there and 25% over here. I mean, you're losing quickly, right? So just noodling this out a little bit. If you lost 10% from age, 15% from dirt, let's be just generous and say 20% for storms and clouds, 20% for heat. I mean, you're literally sitting at an electricity production of under 50% as compared to the rated capacity. So to counteract this, you'd want to basically install at least twice the capacity you actually need so that you can run what you want to run. And if you want a little wiggle room left over, because you're probably going to need it, you need to install even more. And eventually these suckers need to be replaced. And although I'd probably just take them out back myself and bust them up into pieces and, you know, just kind of slowly feed the bits and pieces into the normal trash, that's probably not what we're supposed to do. In fact, although they have a small amount of more valuable recyclable or reclaimable metals, such as silver, they also have a small amount of heavy metals, such as cadmium and lead, which might get them classified as hazardous waste. And they're largely made of glass, which can be recycled, but is one of the least profitable recyclables out there. That means that going through the process of transporting, breaking down, dealing with the hazardous waste, and recycling the panels is very expensive as compared to just landfilling them. The one company, as of mid-2021, that was recycling only their panels found that it cost about $20 to $30 per panel to recycle them, about $1 to $2 per panel to landfill them. But we're going to need to figure out what to do with these panels soon because the panels of the early adopters are coming up on 20 to 30 years of installation, meaning they're going to need to be removed and potentially replaced very soon. And with the number of residential and commercial panels being installed right now and, and in more recent years, we've got maybe 20 years before we start seeing a large influx of scrapped panels. Some models, the most optimistic models, factor in very little replacement due to failure or damage. More realistic models show that the solar panel waste is going to pile up a whole lot faster, starting to peak in about 10 years or so from now, rather than the 20 to 25 years that other models predict. The problem is, nobody knows. But what we all know, or at least we should, the best case, most optimistic scenarios rarely come true. So these panels that are meant to save the environment may actually harm the environment if we don't have some way to economically deal with the waste. And we don't, because whenever the government pushes through mandates, laws, and tax incentives, you know, just anything, it never works out long-term. Ever. And that's not the only environmental conundrum. The environmentalists are actually battling each other. It's not just anti-science, flat-earth, climate deniers like myself. Oh, no, sir. This solar farm battle is now between those intellectual elites that know that man-caused climate change is real. The problem is where to put these massive solar farms. Remember, you could put a nuclear power plant in less locations on much less ground to power the same amount of users as these massive, sprawling solar farms. In one corner, 
You have those that say, as they've been psychologically manipulated to believe, we must do something now. That means if we don't start pooping these solar farms just everywhere right now, it'll delay our elimination of fossil fuel reliance and the planet will burn like the dream sequence at the playground in Terminator 2. If you know, you know. In the other corner are those that absolutely agree that we need to do something now, but dare to wonder aloud if it's a good idea to just, you know, mow down the trees and scalp farmland bare, strip nature to the dirt in order to construct these mid-air bird fryers. And the conservationists or environmentalists that legitimately care about conserving the environment are fighting back against these proposed solar projects, quite often delaying the installation or getting it canceled altogether. Those who want to displace habitats and strip the land of nature say that we must make sacrifices now in order to avoid far greater losses in the future. Or as George W. Bush said during the recession of 2008, as he did some very non-conservative things, quote, I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. Yeah, that was stupid then, and it's stupid now, just like destroying the environment now in order to save the environment later. At no time, in no way, under any circumstance, does violating principles now ever save them later. I need to commit adultery now in order to save my marriage later. No, the idea that you have to strip nature and destroy the environment in order to save it, that's insanity. But it's insanity to think that solar is the way to power and save the world in the first place. So, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. <laughs> in fact, when you look at the core reasoning behind moving away from fossil fuels to renewable sources of power generation, it's because we're putting too much CO2 in the air, which is a greenhouse gas, which is warming the planet. And we know, per scientific models, that a rise of even 1.5 degrees Celsius will destroy the planet. Right? We all know that. Well, per studies that have been done over the last well, nearly decade now, quote, turning deserts into solar energy farms could raise temperatures across the globe and cause devastating droughts in the Amazon. <laughs> what? Then why, perchance, are we doing this? Deserts have literally been touted as some of the perfect places to put these solar farms. In fact, there are plans drawn up right now for various deserts across the planet to be converted, in part, into massive solar farms, sending power to the entire planet. That said, per an article on greenbiz.com, quote, while the black surfaces of solar panels absorb most of the sunlight that reaches them, only a fraction, around 15% of that incoming energy, gets converted to electricity. The rest is returned to the environment as heat. The panels are usually much darker than the ground they cover, so a vast expanse of solar cells will absorb a lot of additional energy and emitted as heat affecting the climate. If these effects were only local, they might not matter in a sparsely populated and barren desert. But the scale of the installations that would be needed to make a dent in the world's fossil energy demand would be vast, covering thousands of square kilometers. Heat re-emitted from an area this size will be redistributed by the flow of air in the atmosphere, having regional and even global effects on the climate. So... So a study was done in 2018 using a model to simulate installing solar panels in the Sahara Desert. Now, you know how I feel about climate models. This one sounds like it has some 
some at least fairly solid, well-understood data and science, not just assumptions built in. Deserts are generally light-colored and reflect a lot of the sunlight back off the planet. The more you reflect, the less you absorb. The less the planet heats up, the less the atmosphere heats up. But solar panels are dark, absorbing a lot more heat, and just as stated, only using a small percentage of that sunlight energy, returning most of it to the surrounding environment in the form of heat. Remember, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It's converted. So if we're absorbing all that energy from the sun, it has to do something. In this case, we're talking about a lot of heat. What the study found is that when the solar farm reached 20% of the total area of the Sahara Desert, it triggered a feedback loop. The massive amount of heat caused a large temperature differential between the land and the surrounding oceans, which caused moist air to rise, rain to form and fall, and not just rain. We're talking torrents of rain, monsoons even. And the desert would be watered like has never been seen, at least not that we have any record of. This would mean that the desert is now not a desert, which means that vegetation starts growing. Vegetation, because of the nature of vegetation and the color of vegetation, absorbs more heat than deserts, meaning more water is absorbed and evaporated from plant life, creating more humidity. We're talking about the shift from a desert to a tropical rainforest here. This change using ocean models and atmospheric models showed that a fraction of a degree temperature increase would occur around the planet on average, but there would be areas of much higher temperature changes, localized hotspots, if you will, like at the poles which would result in sea ice loss at the Arctic, which would further increase the speed of global warming, melting more ice, ice that reflects sunlight, ice that sits on top of darker water, which when melted allows the dark water to absorb more heat from the sun, and you kind of get the picture. Now, per their atmospheric models, the temperature differentials of land, the poles, the oceans would actually change the circulation of the atmosphere and the oceans and would bring drought to the Amazon and Congo Basin as rains shift away from it, moving farther north, etc., etc., etc. Okay, so do I buy all of their model results? No. But modeling a feedback loop in the desert, I don't know. I think there's probably some solid known science regarding water, air, land temperatures, and how these affect evaporation and condensation and rain. We know how plants grow. I think they could also, within reason, predict shifting atmospheric and oceanic currents based on temperature. So could these solar farms cause the very global warming they're meant to eliminate? Yeah, just from the fact that they're absorbing more heat. They sure could. Once that heat is absorbed, it's going to dissipate, but it's not going to reflect. That's the same idea as why big cities are always hotter. A lot of dark pavement, dark buildings, dark roofs. That's why back in the 1970s, when the fear was a coming global ice age, a possible solution was to mandate black roofs on everything to absorb the sun's heat and warm the planet. And maybe, what, 20 years ago and again recently, with the boogeyman of global warming taking center stage, some scientists are suggesting we paint roads white and roofs white and shoot particulate into the atmosphere that would reflect the sunlight. So let's back up and think of what we're doing here. We need to transition to renewable energy, not nuclear of which solar is the better technology between wind and solar, which are pretty much the only options we're allowed to even consider at this point. We need to transition because the fossil fuels we're currently using are causing too much CO2 to just be puked into the atmosphere, and that will lead to warming across the globe and certain doom. But 
What we're seeing today and have been for years now is that the Earth is literally taking care of the CO2 on its own. Found on Vox.com headline, The Earth is Getting Greener. Hooray? Yeah, so despite the fact that we, uncaring humans, are just destroying the planet, it's actually getting greener. Like, everything is getting greener. And as you might expect, that's also a bad thing. See, the amount of vegetation on land is just going gangbusters because it loves the CO2 that we're giving it, and the oceans are getting greener as well. We'll get to that in a second. Turns out for about four decades or so now, the planet has been growing more vegetation despite humans. One reason that Vox gives is, quote, air pollution. <clears throat> humans have increased the CO2 in the atmosphere by a large percentage, so they say, and the plants are just loving it. Additionally, humans are growing more plants, more dense crops, more crops overall, more previously barren areas of land being used for crops. This is primarily being seen in countries like China and India, you know, where they need food. And as luck would have it, if plants didn't work the way they did, global warming would be worse. So we should be pretty thankful that plants work, you know, the way that they work. But the oceans are also getting greener, like the actual color. The theory is that it's being caused by an increase in phytoplankton, which are tiny plant-like organisms that also thrive on CO2, or it could just be a greener form of phytoplankton that are thriving more than they did before. They actually don't even know, but what they do know is that this might be bad for the climate. Unfortunately, they just, they just don't know. And so because they know what they don't know might be bad or maybe not, we should be scared. As for the land, well, just because we see color doesn't mean we know what it is. Would you believe that farmers across the world are tearing down native forests in order to plant crops of whatever, in order to feed people? And all that stuff just looks green. But now the problem we've got is that the green may not be the right kind of green. In fact, China and India have been planting trees, which we're all supposed to do, right? No, not right. Not the way they're doing it. They're only planting one or two tree species primarily. So that's wrong because of reasons. As Vox sums up their article, quote, So yes, greening is complicated. It's not inherently good. Sometimes it's very bad. Context, it turns out, matters a lot. If there's anything we can glean from color alone, it's the scale of human impact. It's not that nature is healing, that forests are growing back because we left them alone, but that we have drastically changed the atmosphere, the ground, and the ocean. We have changed the very look of our planet, and it's visible from space. And I have to wonder, how long did a think tank have to work on how the planet greening over the last 40 years or so was a bad thing? It used to be that we were destroying the planet and mowing down forests and destroying the rainforests, and eventually we were only going to have a barren desert wasteland devoid of all vegetation. But now that that hasn't panned out, well, we still must push the man is evil narrative. So now less vegetation is bad and, and more vegetation is bad. You see the moving target? See the insanity? I mean, this is mental illness. But now, throw these massive solar farms into the mix... What if their models are correct? If we build massive farms, we're cutting down vegetation at the farm site by 40%, maybe or maybe not, may cause more vegetation to grow and thus more heating of the planet through absorption of the sun's energy. But what we do know is that as solar replaces fossil fuels, the solar farms start absorbing heat where heat used to reflect. But the atmosphere has much less CO2 because of the solar energy, no longer the fossil fuel energy, meaning the vegetation will now actually grow less 
Plus, the models say this heat would cause droughts around the globe, possibly more melting of the glaciers, causing more heat absorption. Now we have a planet that's heating and dying because of the very solar farms that were meant to save the planet from heating and dying. Can we be any more stupid? And please don't answer that. <clears throat> We've covered this before. Look, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Day one was creating the light and splitting it from the dark. Day two was splitting waters above and below the sky and creating our atmosphere. Day three was brushing the waters back to reveal dry land and making vegetation grow on that land. Day four was the sun, the moon, the stars, and the planets. Day five was fish and birds. Day six was animals and man. And there you go. The earth, the sun, the vegetation, the atmosphere, man and beast, all designed, all created, all made to work together in a symbiotic union. We all need each other. I guess the sun doesn't really care if anything is alive anywhere, but he's just burning with rage, so I'm not saying anything to him. You can if you want. We need the atmosphere, and the atmosphere needs us. The plants need us, and we need them. The plants, sun, water, breathing creatures, and atmosphere... They all need each other. And not only do all of these things need each other, including us, well, we're all designed to maintain and adapt in relation and response to each other. Now, one could argue that mankind has screwed up mankind because of sin, but the planet, although groaning, although certainly not working exactly the same way it was originally designed due to entropy, you know, the general degradation, the tendency toward chaos due to man's sin, the planet, nature, well, it just does what it does. It does what it's designed to do, more or less. You pump CO2 into the atmosphere, as long as there's ground and nutrients in the ground and sunlight and water, the plants grow until they hit a certain limit. Isn't it interesting that the plants don't suck all the CO2 out of the atmosphere? Could they? If there were no animals, no man, no natural producers of CO2, could plants exhaust the CO2? Maybe, probably, but they don't because those things all exist and we keep replenishing the CO2 by existing. Man, in our arrogance, believes that all of this was formed by chance, and as such is extremely fragile. But our eyes tell us the absolute opposite. The planet, nature, even mankind is very robust. Think of how many copies of humans we've created since the original pair, and how although there are changes, although there are glitches in the code, because of the design of producing another copy of a human, the code is designed to not just copy, but to correct and repair itself. The number of glitches that actually occur are very minimal. The planet is the same. Because of the design, water will clean itself, air will clean itself, vegetation will repopulate, etc., etc. Man can't stop it. We can hold it back and maintain it, but if you stop taking care of your house and your yard... The planet will take care of it for you, and in relatively short order. The bottom line is that God has already made the perfect design. That design, quite obviously based on any rudimentary science, includes cycles. Periods of warmer and cooler atmospheres. Periods of higher and lower levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. Periods of more and less green on the planet, and so on. And this planet was designed per God's plan prior to making a single molecule to provide us with resources like fossil fuels, sunlight, water, geothermal, wind. We can give God all the praise for the abundance of blessings he's given us on this planet. The problem comes in when man decides there is no God, which automatically makes man the God of this planet, and wow, are we not good at that. The godless worldview also ensures that we do science badly. 
We hypothesize incorrectly. We compile the wrong data. We analyze it mistakenly and we draw the wrong conclusions. And from that, we develop actions that are completely incorrect and we screw things up more than what we thought they were in the first place. And this is so evident these days in the quest to eliminate a change in the global temperature, misusing God-given resources with our creations that are clearly not able to perform as we hope or as we're told they will. And the cherry on top of this poopy Sunday is our arrogance. I'm not just talking about the arrogance of mankind. I'm talking about man today, right now, current modern man, the utter arrogance that we have the right to claim that the atmosphere shall have this concentration of these gases and that's all. Or to claim that the temperature of this planet should be such and such, no more, no less. Or the double-barreled brass one must have to tell us that we must green the planet. That's the only way to save it. And when the planet gets greener, a lot greener, in fact, to claim that it's not the right kind of green. Or to assert that the poles must have this level of glacial ice. Or that the oceans are to be at such and such level. And the ultimate arrogance to make the claim that this current generation is randomly lucky enough to live on a planet at a time when all of those planetary parameters are right exactly in the sweet spot. Out of the millions upon millions of years, allegedly, that you and I right now are living at the optimal time in all of that history. This little slice of the timeline we just happen to nail all those things perfectly right now. And we must sacrifice time, talent, treasure, and people in order to keep it right there. And everything we do proves that God's design is the best design because everything we do makes things worse, at least based on what we're told our goals are. The climate agenda is a mental illness, or even more accurately, it's a religion unto itself, but it's a demonic religion, a godless religion, ultimately a religion of death. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong or evil or sinful about renewable energy or electric cars, solar farms, recycling. God has given us resources, knowledge, the ability to learn about and develop technology, the ability to try things, the ability to fail without destroying ourselves or the planet. But when we pursue anything, despite all evidence telling us we're wrong, when we rapidly pursue an agenda, regardless of the consequences, when we place the creation above the image bearers of God, above God himself and his truth, that's when we've turned the corner towards sinfulness. So you and I, although most of us don't have a platform to change the course of the world, we can stay grounded in the truth. If the Lord tarries, if this world is allowed to move along for a number of years into the future, it will once again need truth-tellers. That may be us, maybe our kids, that may be our grandkids, but it starts with us. We need to ground ourselves, ground our kids, and speak the truth in love. Don't have to be hateful, regardless of how we're demonized for doing so. I'm kind of in a conundrum here. Wait, does one exist in a conundrum or does one have a conundrum? I'm all conundrumed right here where I sit as we speak. I'm not sure if I need to start this segment citing argumentum ex silentio, or an argument from silence, or argumentum ad ignorantium, or an argument from ignorance. See, these are very similar and closely related and somewhat interchangeable. One, an argument from silence is when a conclusion is drawn based on the fact that something doesn't exist. And on the other, an argument from ignorance is drawing a conclusion because nothing has, as of yet, shown the conclusion to be false. They're not identical, 
but they are close, and they're both logical fallacies. Now, I mentioned this example before, but it's a good illustration. Did you know that the inside of a watermelon is purple until you breach the rind in any way, at which point the insides react instantly with the gaseous composition of the air, which causes it to turn the reddish-pink color that we're all familiar with? Prove me wrong. Now, I've presented you an argument that is absolutely unprovable. What we know is that by the time we see the inside, it's pink. We know that we can't see the inside unless we breach the rind. Ergo, you can't prove me wrong. I can't prove I'm right, but you can't prove me wrong. This is Schrodinger's cat, right? I mean, I can claim that the cat inside the box is either alive or dead. And in fact, the cat inside the box is both of those at the same time until we open the box. And then it instantly becomes only one of those things. Both of those examples, I believe, would be more of an argument from ignorance, as there is nothing to prove my claim to be false. The Schrodinger's cat claim will be proven or disproven as soon as we open the box. The watermelon claim can never be proven. It's literally impossible to prove or disprove. So that said, I believe that what we're dealing with here today is, as of now, a purple watermelon, but could later be a Schrodinger's cat. So I guess today we're going to be looking at an argumentum ad ignorantium, an argument from ignorance, that we shall call the Schrodinger's Watermelon. Found on Live Science via MSN.com headline, we finally know why humans don't have tails. And, uh, and can we fix this, please? Because I could really use a tail. I mean, yes, we'd have to modify pants, but man, would a functional tail come in really handy sometimes. Okay, let's put this out just right out front first thing here. This is a fairly technical article. I'm not going to go super deep into this thing because I can't imagine you care about the minute details. I don't want to spend forever trying to work through all the science. And finally, and probably most importantly, I have no idea what most of this actually means. But I know that this article is tailor-made for this podcast, and you'll understand why within moments. Paragraph the first, quote, approximately 25 million years ago, an ancestor of both humans and apes genetically diverged from monkeys and lost its tail. This is written as fact. The only thing that's not exactly completely known is exactly when this occurred, you know, approximately 25 million years ago. So looking at the tree of evolution, it appears that the Katarini, the scientific name for the old world monkey we all diverge from, incorporated 146 species and split into monkeys and apes. The monkeys kept their tails and kept making monkey variants. And seven million years later, the apes, who did not get to keep their tails, well, they split into the great apes and the gibbons. Only four million years later, the great apes split into orangutans and African apes, which I'm pretty sure is racist at this point. A mere six million years after that, the African apes split into gorillas, and then whatever our common link is between homo sapiens, or you know, humans, chimpanzees and bonobos, and then two million years later, so only six million years ago, homo sapiens split from chimps and bonobos and let them go their way. That is what we're being asked 
to believe. Now, the rub is that there's quite literally no proof of this. There are no missing links. There is no place in the world where we see examples of these various creatures buried in the rock layers that they say correspond to the various ages, one on top of the other. And every so-called missing link they claim are either monkeys or apes or something similar or their man. There's also no documentation. There's no pictures. Nobody was alive at that time. But look, None of that's going to help us in our quest to find out what happened to our tale, so let's endeavor to persevere through this article. A new study published February 28th of 2024, so, you know, extra, extra, read all about it, hot off the presses. Researchers stated in the journal Nature that they've identified a unique DNA mutation that caused us to lose our tail all those approximate years ago. They found this mutation in the TBXT gene, now, this gene provides instructions for making a protein, which plays a critical role in embryonic development. The family of proteins this contributes to regulates other genes by binding to specific regions of DNA. This specific protein, called the brachiuri, is critical for development of the notochord, which is a precursor to the spinal column in an embryo. Now, it disappears or disperses before birth with some of the cells helping to control the development of the neural tube, which ultimately develops into the brain and the spinal cord. Now, I know I said I wasn't going to get too deep in the weeds on this, but although I'm not a biology or life science kind of guy, isn't that fascinating? I mean, the microscopic processes that take place in the creation of life, the formation of a living creature, human or otherwise is simply mind-boggling. And this is only one small activity for one small process at one specific very early point in the development of a living copy of something else. Now, I'll be the first to admit that I'm nowhere near smart enough to ever grasp this genetic stuff to, to any deep degree, but when you can get a, a kind of a kind of summarized description like this, and it's this amazing still, it's just, I mean... Like I said, it's just fascinating. Okay, so you can see where the connection is being made, right? I mean, this gene ultimately has to do with the spinal cord, okay? So the first author of the study, Bo Gia, apparently injured his tailbone at one point and became interested in the evolution of said tailbone. According to the senior author of the study, Itai Yanai, Bo is a genius because he's seeing something that thousands of other people quote, must have looked at before. New article heading, paragraph one, quote, over millions of years, changes in DNA allow animals to evolve. Some changes involve only a single rung in DNA's twisted ladder, but others are more complex. <sighs> Again, another indisputable fact, at least the way they state it. Evolution, well, the theory of evolution is a truly amazing thing. It can be undirected and random chance mutations and survival of the fittest. It can be a conscious act of force adding or eliminating traits as needed or desired somehow. It can be small changes over long periods of time, major jumps over long periods of time. It can be complete jumps to something completely different practically overnight. It's completely malleable. It's literally everything for every situation, depending on what the hypothesis requires in whatever study is being done. 
that's really the most amazing part about evolution, to be honest. Okay, continuing on. So the next thing we need to know about are called alu elements, uh, A-L-U, alu, alu, whatever they are. These are basically short stretches of DNA that can generate RNA and then convert back to DNA and, and insert themselves back into the genome. They are called a transposable element because they can kind of pop into the genome anywhere. In fact, they're the most abundant transposable element with over a million copies in the human genome. They had been thought to be just a parasite on the genome initially because the thought was that all they cared about was self-reproduction. However, according to Wikipedia, quote, they are likely to play a role in evolution and have been used as genetic markers, which are ways used to identify individuals or species at the genetic level. Now, I'd say that maybe they're not just parasites, maybe they're not an evolutionary thing, maybe they serve very specific purposes and were designed to do so. But again, what do I know? <laughs> nothing. That's what I know, nothing. According to the article, these little fellas, which only exist in primates, just insert themselves randomly into the genome. I would probably dispute that this is random. I'd argue that these things do exactly what they're designed to do, and the fact that we don't know what or understand what they do exactly doesn't mean they're parasites or random. When these, quote, jumping genes insert themselves into the code, they can either disrupt or enhance the gene's function. And by doing this, they've been creating the genetic diversity, the evolution of primates, for just millions of years. Okay, so now that we have these two things defined, the TBXT gene and these alu elements. The study in question found two alu elements in the gene TBXT existing in great apes, but not in monkeys. Boom! Evolution. Questions? I didn't think so. Good night, everybody. No, neither you and I are getting out of this that easy. Okay, next gene bits we need to become familiar with. Introns and exons. So, there are about nine exons per gene, about eight introns per gene. These are nucleotide sequences that exist inside the gene. The introns serve their function early, and as RNA matures, they are removed through splicing. The exons actually bond to each other and create the mature mRNA. Okay, so these alu elements exist in the introns, which, quote, have been referred to as dark matter of the genome because they were historically assumed to have no function. <laughs> Again, the arrogance of humanity on display. Rather than say, hey, well, these exist, they must have a function. Let's figure out what function that is. We say, well, these exist, we really can't tell what they do, so they must not do anything. This is the difference between a God-based worldview and a godless worldview. All fields of science started with the intent of discovering God's creation, understanding it more and more and more to worship God for all of his glory. From just the small ham-fisted definitions of these processes that I've given you, I think that we can understand the worshiping of God for his unfathomable creation. But in a godless worldview, they have a much more simplistic view, actually, almost dismissive, rather than strive to discover the function. If it's not readily apparent, well, it, it must just be a remnant of evolution. It's just junk DNA, or just a vestigial organ. And time after time, so-called science is proven wrong. 
Now, here are some things that science, <clears throat> quote unquote, has decided are vestigial or not needed, but we still have them. And what you'll find from a biblical worldview is that these are either absolutely needed, or they're markers of common design from a single designer, or they're evident of a loss of information in the majority of humans, which, just like losing a tail, is by definition the opposite of evolution. The first one, male nipples. Everyone has them. There is speculation as to why, but just because we don't know exactly why doesn't mean they don't have a function. How about wisdom teeth? This is a loss of information, as not everyone has them or has a full set of them, and it's a possible marker that says man used to be much larger. The palmaris longus muscle. This is a muscle in the forearm that helps the hand to flex and grab, but not everyone has one, and we actually don't need it. So this, again, appears to be a loss of information. The tailbone. Now, they call this vestigial because they say it used to be a tail, but it isn't anymore, so we don't need it. It's lost its function. But in the same article, in the same paragraph, they state that it serves as an anchor point for muscles, ligaments, and tendons. So, not vestigial at all. It has a very, very important function. But because we came from tailed monkeys, this must be vestigial now, right? I mean, educated, highly degreed, otherwise very smart people believe that somehow. How about the appendix? Old Charlie Darwin himself suggested that the appendix was vestigial, because as we know, Darwin, who was not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, in a period of human history that had a very rudimentary understanding of anatomy, could definitely tell us that something he didn't understand probably wasn't needed anymore. Makes perfect sense to me. Except that, yes, the appendix is needed. Just because you can live without it doesn't mean it serves no function. It means God knew what he was doing because he knew the future, because he created the future before creating the first molecule, and this little organ was destined to malfunction for some people. How about the third eyelid? So, we don't have one. Birds Reptiles and some mammals have a, a kind of inner windshield wiper eyelid that wipes across the eyeball. And just like the tail, thanks evolution for getting rid of that. I mean, we may look just a little lizard people-ish with one of those, but can you imagine how handy that would be? So nobody has it anymore, but what <clears throat> science term used a very loosely here, has determined is that what you and I call the tear duct, you know, that little pink ball in the inner corner of your eye, the one that you're now thinking about, wondering if you have just a little eye crusty in there, don't touch it. Resist the urge, the ever-growing urge. I mean, you can practically feel the little crusty thing sitting there. Anyway, science says that that little ball is the remnant of the third eyelid. Now, admittedly, it helps with tear drainage and it supports eyeball rotation, but it can be removed if the tear duct narrows or blocks off, and you can survive without it just fine. But again, just because you can get rid of it doesn't mean it's vestigial. You rubbed your eye checking for that crusty thing, didn't you? All right. Let's work our way off of this here rabbit trail back to our gene TBXT and our alu elements and our introns and our exons. So although science believes these introns to be useless, in this case it's clearly not, the bottom line is these introns and the TBXT genes generate RNA, the alu elements bind them together, then splices out of the DNA, stealing an exon when it goes, just like a common thief. 
In fact, when doing further studies, they found that these introns were 100% conserved in all apes and 100% absent in all monkeys. See? Evolution. Boom! And humans have the same ALU sequences in the TBXT gene and remove the same exon as they do with apes. Boom, evolution, double boom. Quote, mutations like this have often been thought to be of limited consequence in evolution. Here, the authors show that such a mutation has had a profound impact on our species. See what I meant earlier? Evolution is all things to all studies and all researchers just depends on what you need it to do. Quote, it is exciting to think of how many other complex mutations like this could have generated important traits throughout human evolution. Why, that is certainly exciting, I would say, right? I mean, hate to think of the disappointment for these guys when either in this life or in eternity they come to an understanding that the answer is none, right? There, there's no, no other complex mutations that have had an effect on human evolution. <laughs> you were duped. You followed a false religion and, and you placed your faith in man rather than God. Wasn't a good idea at all. Okay, so recall how I said that these things only exist in primates. Yeah, so scientists decided to shove some of them into mice because, I mean, you know, mice are both cheap and plentiful and specific genetic elements that stop the production of a tail by removing that exon shoved into a mouse, and you'll never believe this, will it remove the exon in the mouse and stop the offspring from growing a tail? I mean, like magic. Of course, the mice experienced, you know, the birth defect of spina bifida at a greatly elevated rate, which, again, color me shocked. I mean, you're injecting things into something that didn't have those things, forcing it to mutate on a birth defect occurred. <laughs> wow. And now we've reached the point in our scientific study when the gross leaps of logic are brought out, displayed for all to see, and stated as if they're scientific fact. Quote, Evolutionary biologists hypothesize that the loss of the tail allowed humans to become bipedal, according to a 2015 review. We are the only paper that has ever put together a plausible scenario for how it happened, Yanai told Live Science. We're now walking on two feet, and we evolved a big brain and wheeled technology, he said, all from just a selfish element jumping into the intron of a gene. It's astounding to me. <laughs> Mr. Yanai, it's astounding to all of us, just, just maybe for different reasons. Quote, I think there's going to be more of them out there, Jeff Boak, another senior author of the study, said of these influential alu elements. Therefore, he added, there's probably alternatively spliced proteins out there that are actually the root cause of some evolutionary change in our traits. Again, I'm astounded, aren't you? Simply gobsmacked. Day five, birds and fish. Day six, man and beast. It's literally that simple. Or how about, quote, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overtake it. What about David in the Psalms saying, quote, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 
Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Or maybe, quote, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. How about the word of Yahweh through Isaiah? Quote, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Yeah, all throughout the Bible, we hear how God created all things, how we are formed in the womb, how God knew us before we were born, how the elect were chosen before they were created, before they had done anything. Now, I'll admit, to ponder this world, all that exists through the lens of evolution, is awe-inspiring. It's truly amazing to believe that everything came from nothing, everything randomly mutated and changed, causing everything we see to come into being. It's amazing to think that you and I were once nothing but goo, then fish, then lizards, then mammals, then primates, monkeys, apes, and then human. And from that same goo came all vegetation, fruits, vegetables, trees, weeds, grain. We're literally related to everything and everything is related to us and nothing but chance mutation made us a human rather than a grain. And then it's crazy to think that in another million years humans may not exist or we may be something completely different as evolution continues its relentless march toward well, nothing really. It's just a relentless march. And you and I, well, we'll die. And we'll never know what our contribution on Earth did. We'll never know what comes in the future. We'll just be done. And there's not really a point to all this, to, to the joy, the sorrow, the pain. Nothing really has a point. We learn, but everything we learn dies with us. And based on many, many articles on the theory of evolution that I've read, whatever you've done, whatever you've learned, whatever our contribution to society, it'll all be disregarded. They'll be updated and modified, likely proven wrong at some point. As for our legacy, like it matters, as we'll be compost, it'll last through your friends, maybe through some other people. Your employer will possibly have your name on stuff you did for a few decades. In your family, your kids will remember you, your grandkids if you make it that long, and great-grandkids possibly. But after that, you're nothing but a photograph that only a few relatives care about as I try to piece together their family tree. Amazing and depressing and fantastical and religious because wow, do you have to have faith. But a biblical worldview, well, that's different. First, to be very clear, the biblical worldview is the only worldview that actually makes sense of what we see in the world. The story doesn't have to keep changing. It can be updated and understood better as we discover things, but the story never changes. There's no junk DNA. There's no useless organs, no random pointless processes. If we don't know what something does, we realize it's because we haven't discovered its function yet. But we can be sure that there is a function, that all of creation has a purpose, whether it's performing the purpose it was originally designed for or a changed purpose after sin changed the world. It's performing its purpose. God is not a God of waste or chaos. All things have a purpose, if even only from an ultimate worldview, from God's view. 
But regarding science, how much more interesting and amazing would science be if we could no longer dismiss what we don't understand, rather we'd strive and hypothesize and test, experiment, analyze, until we figured out what purpose that thing has, because we know it has one. On a much, much smaller scale, one reason I've been well-liked as a reliability engineer throughout my career is because I almost never give up. If there's a problem, there is a solution. It's a matter of finding it. It's an ordered, hope-fueled worldview. And infinitely more importantly, if we're saved, we may die. In fact, we'll all likely die at some point. It's hard to avoid, to be honest. But we won't disappear. We won't cease to be. And our earthly legacy, although much less important, won't be in vain. We're working as if for God, and we're working per God's plan and purpose. Our families may only remember us for a few generations, but there will be a day when our entire family, past and future, will know us, and we'll know them. And not only that, but we'll be family with all our brothers and sisters in Christ. Talk about a reunion. Unfortunately, for those with a godless worldview, for those without Christ as their Savior— they will come to some sort of understanding of what the children of God know now and will know in eternity, but it'll be too late to do anything about it. So, why don't we have tails? Well, because of the TXBT gene and the ALU elements and the introns and the exons. I mean, we covered this. It's because God designed those things to work the way that they do, because God did not desire for us to have a tail, no matter how handy it could have come in. Maybe that was because we wouldn't need it. Maybe that was yet another aspect to set us distinctly apart from the animals. Maybe it was simply for God to show his amazing creative power in yet another way by creating this very complex, microscopic process that takes place in only a few of his creations so that you and I and the scientific community could marvel at it and give God all the glory for the great things he hath done. Let's be Bereans chapter 2. In short, this is the time when I let you in on my thoughts from my time studying my Bible. I'll likely restate my caveat each time here. These are my thoughts, my questions, and my, for lack of a better term, <laughs> revelations. In some cases, I'll study these more and look into definitions and the original language and cross-references, or the magical internet, right? In other cases, I'm just kind of jotting down my thoughts, so don't take what I state and wonder aloud as definitively correct. Do your own research. Double-check me. Be a Berean, right? And then feel free to contact me with any corrections or questions or comments or whatever. So with that, let's see what we can discuss this week. All right, so last time we finished up Exodus, which means regardless of if you're reading straight through the Bible or you're reading chronologically as I am, we are now in Leviticus, and this is the chapter that most people fall apart and give up attempting to read through the Bible. I understand. I've been there. But there are some interesting things in here, too. Granted, a lot of repetition, but some interesting stuff. Now, the book starts with a list of offerings and sacrifices with, uh, you know, whatever those entail and how they should be done. God is very specific about how he is to be worshipped. We see this all throughout the Bible, and we'll come back to this at another time as well. But he takes the worship of himself by his creation very seriously. And that realization of how exacting he is terrifies me, both for myself and then for these Large buildings full of people just playing church. Anyway, not the point here. 
After seven chapters of very specific instruction, we get to chapter eight, by chance, which is the ordination of Aaron as the high priest and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, or Abihu, I like Abihu. Moses goes through the process of anointing the tabernacle, washing and dressing Aaron and his sons, anointing them, making all the sacrifices all over a period of seven days. On day eight, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu make their sacrifices. Now, this brings us to chapter 10. So chapter 9, I know I just said 10, chapter 9 ends with Moses and Aaron going into the tent of meeting, coming back out, blessing the people, and the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people, at which point the fire of God came from Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering. So now chapter 10 starts with, quote, then Nadab and Abihu. Okay, then, then Nadab and Abihu. So this is right after chapter 9. There's no break in the narrative, no skipping ahead in the timeline. This is still the exact same day that Aaron and his sons had finished the seven-day ritual commissioning as Yahweh's priests. The first action the sons took after assisting with the sacrifices was to grab their fire pans, put fire in it, and place incense on it. The problem was that they offered this to Yahweh, but this was not how they were instructed to discharge their duties. And so fire came out from the presence of Yahweh and consumed Nadab and Abihu, and he killed them. Now, I'm not sure why, but I always had the impression that this story happened at some point later, but not the same day that they started their service to God in the tabernacle, and not from the first action they took. I mean, that is a bad first day on the job, you know, being consumed by fire from God. But from what we're told, this was because they worshipped God in a way that he had not prescribed. Now, granted, the Old Testament days are not the current covenant that we're living in, and they were in a very unique position, but we must, we, you and I, must do our due diligence to worship God correctly. To me, and again, you may disagree, but to me, this means the music we offer in worship, the money and the time we give in worship, the focus and the mindset that we have during church, the taking of communion, the time in prayer. God is not a God who will be mocked. He is not our buddy. He's not someone that's just gaga over us, you know, where we can do no wrong because he's just crazy about us. He's God. He's just. He's righteous. He's holy, holy, holy. Finally, regarding this very short story, it's only a verse or two long, really. All we know from the Bible about Nadab and Abihu was that they were born in Exodus 6, and then in Exodus 24, they were included with Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders that went up on the lower part of Mount Sinai, saw essentially what sounds like the feet of Yahweh, and feasted before Moses was called up alone to the presence of Yahweh, leaving the rest at the, the lower section. Then we read of their commissioning, and then they die, and that's it. But Jewish tradition, or mythology, has fleshed them out a little bit more for us. According to Chabad.org, that's C-H-A-B-A-D, Chabad.org, the Jewish commentaries and the Midrashim say this about who Nadab and Abihu were. They say that their piety was on par with the greatest of the great, Moses and Aaron. They were clean from sin, up until the sin that caused their untimely death. They were extremely handsome physically, which reflected a beautiful soul within. After their death, God turned to Moses and said, and I love this part, quote, 
Tell Aaron your brother that I have done a great kindness and honor to him by the death of his children, Nadab and Abihu, for now I have placed him in the innermost chamber, even closer to me than you, Moses. Mm -hmm. They said that God treasured them, and thus their death is mentioned many times in the Torah. They say that God instructed that all the Jews mourn their death, and they say that they were reincarnations of the positive elements of Cain, you know, the son of Adam and Eve, the one who killed Abel. <clears throat> As to what actually happened, why were they killed? Well, it could be that they offered unauthorized fire disregarding the commands of God, and, you know, that was a serious thing. Or, as the Jewish commentary state, it was probably something else. It could be that they were being disrespectful to Moses, since one should not render judgment in front of his teacher. That's a quote. They apparently did that to Moses by saying God told them to bring their own fire to the altar. Uh, it could have been that they were drinking on the job. It could have been that they never married and had no good reason for not doing so. It might have been that they were behaving casually before God, but not at the offering of strange fire. They apparently ate, drank, and stared at God while they were on Sinai, which, from what the Bible says, is probably what the entire group of them were doing. I'm not sure why these guys would be different. Anyway, they also say that at some point prior to this whole episode, Moses and Aaron were walking, Nadab and Abihu were following them, and I just love how detailed this is, with absolutely no proof whatsoever. Quote, Nadab turned to Abihu and said, when will these two elders die so that you and I can lead the generation? And God heard this and said, remember, God heard this and God said, let us see who will bury whom. <laughs> and then finally, maybe this happened because they didn't seek advice. They just thought they knew everything. I don't know. Simply amazing that these and others not mentioned here are the reasons the Jews believe might have been why they were consumed. It seems relatively simple to me since we don't really have all this other information, we just have what we're given, they didn't worship God as very specifically prescribed and just decided to do it their own way and blaspheme God by doing so. I mean, what would that example, if left alone, show the rest of the people? God commanded to be worshipped a certain way, but it's okay. He'll just kind of let you do whatever. Like I said, this really makes me look at these uh, evangeli kind of churches, you know, the seeker-sensitive, the, the do-anything-short-of-sin-to-bring-people-in type of churches. Boy, it makes me look at them much differently. Okay, spent way more time on that one than intended. Let's keep moving. This is a quick one. The last section in chapter 13, a chapter talking about leprosy, etc., etc., it speaks how to handle garments that have some sort of growth on them. It speaks of the warp and woof of the fabric many times over. You potentially heard that phrase elsewhere, warp and woof. We don't use it very often anymore, but it's an older phrase. Do you know what it is? Now, admittedly, some of you probably do, but if you don't, I looked it up. Here's what it is. The warp of a fabric is the threads or are the threads that are running lengthwise. The woof are the threads that run crosswise. And that's it. And now you know. Okay, moving back into my in-depth studies section, in Genesis 10, we get a little genealogy of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons. Both Japheth and Ham have descendants and nations that are mentioned in Ezekiel in the prophecy against Tyre. And remember, the lament over the king of Tyre is speaking of Satan's fall from heaven due to his pride. 
Now, Shem is not named in any way in that prophecy. None of his descendants, none of the lands or anything that would be connected to him. Jesus is descended from Shem. So what does this mean? I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. Now, Shem's genealogy does come next as the great-great-grandfather of Peleg, which is both a fun name to say, as well as where most people believe the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages occurred. We also see that one of Shem's grandsons was named Uz. Well, Job lived in the land of Uz, and at least by some of the chronological Bible reading schedules, including the one that I'm using, they place the book of Job between Genesis 11 and 12. Well, chapter 11 of Genesis starts with the Tower of Babel and ends with the death of Terah, Abraham's father or Abram's father. Now, that's a period of nearly 300 years that spanned in that one single chapter. That's plenty of time for us to be born, grow, and have his own land named after him. Okay, let's jump back over to Leviticus now. Chapter 20, Yahweh, still speaking to Moses, laying out laws, mandates, penalties, etc. Starting in verse 1, we get a laundry list of actions that require death as the penalty. Now, these applied equally to the children of Israel and any stranger that was living with them. It's an interesting list. Um, let's see what comes into your mind as I walk through this list. Number one, sacrificing your child to Molech. Uh, this is murdering your child through some pagan sacrificial ritual to a false god. Next, turning a blind eye to someone sacrificing their child to Molech and not putting that person to death. Next is turning to mediums and spiritists. Then we have cursing his father or mother. Next on the list is adultery. Remember, these are all things that required the death penalty. Next, we have sexual relations with your mother or stepmother. Then we have sexual relations with your daughter-in-law. Then we have homosexuality, as it's an abomination. And if you don't like that phrasing, I suggest you speak with God. Those are his words. Then we have a man who marries a woman and her mother. And then we have bestiality. And then finally, we have sexual relations with your sister or half-sister. And of course, there are other laws that call for the death penalty throughout the Bible, and there is room for discussion as to what the phrase cut off from his people means. It could be death, it could be removal from the covenant community, has to do with context. But regardless of all that, let me ask you, as I was reading through the list, what came into your mind? If any of you said, uh, everyday life in the United States, <laughs> ding, 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 you'd be right. Or at least you'd be thinking along the same lines as myself. If I were a crazy conspiracy theorist, I would almost think that there were forces that were trying to get us to willingly and specifically violate everything that our thrice holy God commands. Good thing I'm not one of those because those guys are crazy. All right. Next on my list moves us to chapter 24 of Leviticus. You have a, a weird break into the narrative that's going on. So God has been telling Moses about how to conduct the feasts and the ceremonies and the, the Sabbath, the Passover, feast of the harvest, feast of weeks, feast of trumpets, etc., etc. Then he gave the command to keep a lamp continually burning outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting, then to continually ensure there's the bread of the presence on the golden table beside the lamp. Then the chapter changes direction with absolutely no warning or signal of any kind, a son of an Israelite woman and an Egyptian man was fighting with an Israelite man, and he cursed and blasphemed the name, capital N, so we're talking the name of God here. Well, he was taken into custody until they figured out what they should do with him. 
This is when they came to Moses. Now, we already know that Moses had long before divvied up the duties to various levels of leadership before a dispute or a question would make it to him. Now, I'd have, I guess I'd have to assume that this matter made it all the way through the various levels of adjudication, and there was either confusion or there were differing opinions, but somehow the decision was made to take it to Moses. Now, what strikes me as kind of funny is that the way that this breaks in, it appears that it was an interruption. Now, whether Moses was in his tent or in the tabernacle, I don't know, but it almost seems like Moses is conversing with Yahweh, writing down all of these commands and statutes, and then a persistent knocking on, I guess, the tent flap, right? Uh, uh, Moses? Um, so we've got a question. I mean, it just kind of strikes me as funny how the story drops in at a point that really seems to shift the focus dramatically. In fact, after this narrative, it goes back to basically the previous theme. They move into the sabbatical year, the year of Jubilee, the redemption of the land, you know, feasts, festivals, observances. That was kind of the, the whole theme with this little story just kind of popped in there, right? So Moses does stop. He seeks Yahweh's guidance, and the guidance is that the man is to be brought outside the camp. All those that heard him blaspheme are to lay their hands on his head, and then the congregation is to stone him to death, as anyone who blasphemes the name of God is to be put to death. Then it goes into a very short section of an eye for an eye, per the section header at least. If a man murders a human, he is to be put to death. If he strikes down the life of an animal, he must make restitution for it. If a man injures his neighbor, the same injury is to be done to him, and so on and so on. Meaning, blaspheming the name of God is as serious as murdering a human in the eyes of God, and it requires the death of the blasphemer. Again, this really kind of makes me take stock of using the name of God in vain. And this goes beyond just using, you know, the big one, right? And this goes into using things like OMG or using the name of Jesus flippantly. Does it go as far as using words like gosh or geez? Well, I mean, there are some that say that those are minced oaths, which are kind of a one step off of a worse word. You know, it doesn't sound as bad, so we don't really have to be concerned with saying them. Now, some take these words very seriously. Let me say this. If you're convicted by saying those words, the minced oaths, don't say them. If you're saying them in anger, figure out why you're having trouble managing anger. But to me, these are words that have become part of our speech and have become, I guess, disconnected from their original meaning. I mean, I don't have a problem personally with most of these so-called minced oaths. You know, oh, good grief. Some people would have a problem with that. Now, your mileage may vary. I don't know. Some people have great heartache over someone saying the word stupid or the word crap, and that, to me, is an individual choice. That said, if you're saying things and it makes a weaker brother or sister in Christ stumble, well, you're responsible for your choices in that case as well. So, basically, let your conscience be your guide and be aware and conscious about who's around when you say what you say. Additionally, using the name of God in vain or blaspheming the name of God goes well beyond just using his name in a callous or cavalier way. This also includes representing God as a Christian in an inaccurate way or claiming that God said or mandated something that he didn't. The line that so many use these days of, God told me, to me is using God's name in vain because prove it. If God did actually tell you something and you can prove it, then we need to crack open the canon of Scripture and add your revelation to the end of the Bible, as God speaking now should be treated no differently than God speaking then. If we're not willing to do that, 
then we should probably stop saying, God told me. That's just one example. There are limitless examples of how we misuse the name of God or the reputation of God every day. Now, thankfully, we don't live in the old covenant days, but it should give us some pause once again to think about how we're representing the God we claim to love and serve. Okay, last one, and I know these weren't supposed to go as long. It's gone a little bit longer, but this will finish up Leviticus, so might as well hit it and get this one done, right? So as God finishes giving his statutes, his laws, commands, festivals, feasts, and all the rest to Moses, he makes it very clear that there are two possible paths that can be taken from this point. Now, the Israelites can either obey or not obey, but he gives more than just the choices. He actually gives the blessings or the consequences for each of those possibilities. If they obey, rain will be plentiful, harvest will be bountiful, there will be peace in the land, no wars, the wild beasts will be eliminated for them from the land, they will have victory over everyone they pursue, they will be fruitful and multiply, God will walk and dwell with them, they will be his people, and he will be their God. That sounds like a pretty good deal, right? However, if they disobey... Well, God will appoint sudden terror. Sickness and wasting will run rampant. Their enemies will eat the food that they produce in their fields. Enemies will defeat them. They will flee out of stark terror, even though nobody's chasing them. Their sins will be punished sevenfold. There will be no rain, and their fields will fail. Wild beasts will attack man and flocks and herds and dramatically reduce the population of all of those. There will be wars all around them, and when they wall themselves up in a city to protect themselves, pestilence will overtake them. There will be starvation to the point that they will literally turn to cannibalism, eating their own children. Cities and places of worship will lay in ruins. There will be corpses on top of corpses. God will ultimately scatter them across the world, and even in those foreign lands, they will live in terror. And as we know, even with God's clear warning, very clear, very stark warning, they chose disobedience. And so do we. But God did give them hope, as they were going to need it. So if they were to repent, well, God will remember the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God will not completely wipe them out. It just seems amazing to me that God very, very clearly told them of the potential blessings for obedience and the horrific consequences for disobedience, but they chose disobedience. And this is exactly why we need a Savior, a God-man, to perfectly fulfill the law that we couldn't, because that was just it. We couldn't obey the law. Not even knowing the blessings or consequences, none of us could have obeyed the law perfectly. Okay, so take what I've covered, mull it over. I'll let you chew it up, think about what I've said. Like I said, let me know what you think, where I'm wrong, where I'm missing something, whatever, I don't care. Comment on the episode or shoot me an email, whatever you'd like to do. Now, get up, get off your duff, go be a burrito. And with that, sadly, we've reached the end of yet another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. I feel we've bonded as we've laughed and cried and twisted our faces in incredulity. If you've enjoyed or found value in what you've heard, go on and do all the podcast things. And don't forget to check the show notes for links and contact info. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.